Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and you've found the place where we talk horses. Today, we meet Andrea Hadamaki, a freelance photo and print journalist who focuses on agriculture, the environment, and rural life. Publications such as National Geographic, CNN, and the New York Times have published Andrea's work. I've read many of her articles in Western Horsemen over the last several months. When I read a brief bio in Western Horsemen that said she grew up in Colorado, has a master's in international agricultural development, and currently lives on a cattle ranch in southern Chile, I needed to learn more. She's written and photographed in very exotic places, from sheepdogs in Patagonia to a horse-powered farms in Washington State to charas of the Cascades. She finds stories wherever she goes. And she goes to some pretty rough-looking places. I'm excited to learn more about her life as a journalist and photographer. Good morning, Andrea. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, John. It's good to be here with you. In doing some research, what really drew my attention was how did the Colorado-Columbia-Chile connection come about? I grew up in northern Colorado, and I just uh, always enjoyed horses, doing stuff with horses. I didn't come necessarily from a, a horse family. I think when <laughs> I got my first horse, my parents were like, well, maybe we know how to feed it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but other than that, I was kind of on my own to figure it out. Anyways, to jump ahead quite a few years, after I graduated, did my undergraduate degree in English literature, I taught high school for a couple of years in Los Angeles, California. And after I did that, I, I decided that I wanted to spend some time exploring uh, and traveling. So I uh, I took a year and I saved up some money and I spent half a year in South Asia and uh, half a year in South America, where I started in Argentina and then traveled down to Southern Chile. But anyways, at the end of that year, I realized that I really wanted to come back and work in Southern Chile and Patagonia. I felt like if there was a good place to ride a horse, this was it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyways, um, that uh, that's what brought me back to to Southern Chile initially. Then the Colombia connection, the the country of Colombia. I got to work there thanks to a reporting grant that I got from the IWMF, which is the International Women's Media Foundation, and they had a really great grant program for female journalists, so photo, print, oh, wow. audio, and uh, that was what connected me to getting to work on a few stories in that country. Very cool. So you were you taught in LA, and was City of Life not for you? <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> um, that would be a nice way of putting it. I, I really appreciated the experience, my experience in Los Angeles, and I had a really great time working with my students and some fantastic staff at that high school. And I think coming from more of a rural area, it was actually interesting and, and important for me to get a glimpse of what it is like to live in a, a really urban environment. But after those two years, I decided that it just, it, it wasn't a good fit for me. And so I needed to look for something else. And you're fluid in Spanish, I understand? Um, I am now. Yes, it's a, a long project to learn a new language. I bet. I bet. So when you got that first horse in Colorado and you didn't come from a horse family, what kind of riding did you do? Um, I started with my 4-H club. And so I did 
you know, kind of your basic Western equitation, English equitation, basically anything, <laughs> anything that I could do related to horses, I wanted to do. I mean, before I got my first horse, strap a saddle blanket on the porch railing and, you know, make a bridle and, and ride my, <laughs> ride my <laughs> porch railing horse. So, so really anything that, anything that had to do with horses, I was excited about. So I did 4-H and then, uh, um, I later kind of in high school, I started enjoying some competing in NRHA, National Reigning Horse Association so- shows. And then my very first horse was actually an old horse, but the, <laughs> he was uh, like 29. The old horse was gifted to me but the the first horse that was really mine we got him when when he was a yearling and I must have been about oh 12 or 13 oh wow yeah so I mean it's like what you don't recommend right, right. <laughs> you start a young kid with a green horse but parents were thoughtful and they said well we'll do this but the horse is going to go to training for a couple of months and then you're going to take lessons with the trainer so that kind of started me on a, a route of enjoying working with my own horses and that started developing some skills of learning how to work with younger horses and and ride my own yeah green horse green rider that's not a that's not a good combination they say when you went to uc davis for your master's in international agricultural development were your plans to teach or were you going to work on farms or had you set a a firm plan when I applied to go to UC Davis to study that program was probably about 2015, I think is when I started. And it was about that time I, I realized that I wanted to pursue journalism or photography as a as a career. But I'd, at the same time, I'd already applied to this program and I'd been accepted. And I, it was a moment where I wasn't quite sure what to do if I should not go to graduate school and pursue photography, or if I should go ahead and, and do my graduate degree and then figure out how to do the photography alongside that or or afterwards. And so I uh, was able to get into uh, a photography workshop called the Eddie Adams Workshop. It's uh, out in New York State each year. And so that was a pretty big honor for me at that time to get into that workshop. And I was able to speak with uh, former editor at National Geographic, and she said, go and do your degree. <laughs> she said, um, you know, editors like people that are well-rounded and well-educated, and it will give you a depth of knowledge and understanding when you're working with different subjects in different places that you might not have. And so that was a really encouraging push for me to uh, go ahead and do my degree, uh, my master's, and enjoy diving into some of the topics that fascinated me. I, the degree that I chose, it had an international angle. I like traveling to different places. It had to focus on on agriculture, which are, you know, rural and, and ranching stories are topics that I like to explore. And then it also talked about development. So, you know, what changes are happening in different places and, and how does, you know, different histories impact a place or what are some of the different forces that are occurring in a story? I'm really glad that I went ahead and, and did that program. And then from then on, I've continued to look for mentors or workshops and and other ways to improve my photography. Wow. In reading about you, is it true that your photography started in high school with landscapes, bicycles, and kittens? (laughs) That is true. Where did you find that? (laughs) I found that on the International Women's Media Foundation website. Oh, how funny. I don't remember when I wrote that, but that, that is just true. I haven't thought about that for a while. I did. I started uh, taking darkroom photography in high school. And yeah, I mean, I just, you know, you're a freshman or a sophomore <laughs> in high school. 
the back door. I mean, we had some barn cats and, and, you know, like you take a picture of the bicycle rack at the, at the high school trying to figure <laughs> out how to use, you know, focus or depth of field. Uh, so that, yeah, that's kind of where it started. You really have a keen eye for photography. Just in looking at your website and all the photojournalistic pictures that you've done there, they really help tell the story and they add a lot to the stories that you do for Western Horsemen. Did you have favorite photographers that may have influenced you? Well, thanks for your kind words about about the images. I I mean, I do write and I do photograph, but I feel like a photographer, like I, I approach stories as a photographer, I feel like. As far as people I looked up to, I guess some of my earliest influences would have been kind of like classic landscape photographers like Ansel Adams, mm-hmm. you know, black and white and, and very classic. There's also as an adventure photographer, Galen Rowell was his name. And I remember I had his book and he did a lot of travel photography and I was captivated by by his ability to use a camera to tell stories. And then there's, you know, a lot of others out there that I appreciate their work. Yeah. And you're a drone pilot, too. So you capture aerial photography. And I think that adds a lot to your stories. Has that drone ever gotten you in trouble or <laughs> or scared some of the animals you were may have been trying to take their picture? Yeah, I agree that the drone is a really helpful storytelling element. It just gives you a different perspective you know, maybe you wouldn't tell an entire story with a drone, but I think it, adding in one or two pictures sometimes just gives an, an extra, a literal angle <laughs> for people to get some perspective about where you are, where you're working. With a drone, I try and be really careful around livestock. I definitely ask permission first. If people, for example, are working with a herd of cattle, I'll definitely start like on the back end first. And then be watching, you know, different horses reactions or the livestock's reactions. You know, it just depends on on where the cattle have been raised. For example, the cattle here on the ranch in Chile are not used to a lot of commotion or noise or mechanical sounds. So so if they see the drone or the horses see the drone, they'll take off. But if you get around, you know, livestock that's been raised in an area where they're used to traffic or used to different noises, they're usually not too bothered by it. But, you know, the last thing I'd want to do would be to pop that up in front of a gate when people are trying to push <laughs> cattle through. Um, so, so yeah, it hasn't gotten me in trouble, but I just try to be really cognizant and careful about where I put it and, and be paying attention to the, the reaction of both the people and the animals at the same time. And just because I'm a pilot as well, what kind of drew you to wanting to get your Part 107 license. I wanted to do the Part 107 license so that I could use it in my storytelling officially as a journalist. You can use it as a hobby, but if you're making money off it in the sense of I get a story published and I get paid for it, I wanted to be able to have my paperwork in order to do that. My uh, dad is also a, a pilot, not not a commercial pilot, but little experimental airplanes. And so it was fun for me to be able to tell him that I was, that I'm also a pilot. Oh, very good. (laughs) Very good. You can tell that you just really enjoy taking photographs and you love horses. And I grew up riding, you know, Colorado grew up riding in in an arena and kind of in a smaller area. And I definitely appreciative of the things that, that I learned from the trainers and folks that I worked with. I do feel like since I've came to Chile and started living on a ranch, it has definitely influenced the way that I approach stories. I have a different, just a, a 
deeper context and understanding of you know how people work with horses and and why people do things different ways so it was it was a learning curve for me at first to come from you know just riding you know circles in an arena to then considering the horse kind of like a a work partner where you're where you're doing stuff together for 8 or 10 hours it was you know that's when i realized the importance of a really good walk <laughs> i don't think i realized that before <laughs> It does give you a new perspective to actually go out there and try to do a job on a horse. The, the horse appreciates it most of the time, but it's a whole different perspective. Yeah, no, it definitely is. So I'm I'm grateful for having had both experiences. And I think it, it influences the way that I approach the stories. And I want to really learn from the people that I go out and visit they're taking the time to to be able to share their life with you and their experiences and their knowledge. And everyone does things a little different way. And there's often a reason why they do it. So part of the fun of the storytelling is to help explore and explain why someone might do something this way and why it works for them. Absolutely. And you've picked some pretty tougher environments to find your stories. Southern Chile and is it, do you say Magallanes? Magallanes. Uh, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> it's uh, explorer Magellan who uh, came through the, the Strait of Magellan in the 1500s. So oh, Magallanes, yeah. <laughs> and then and then you've also been to uh, the lost coast of California. Is there something that draws you to these out-of-the-way harsh environments? Do you think there are more stories to be found there? Or do you think that's where untold stories might be discovered? I think that... You can find stories anywhere. You can find stories in your own backyard with what's going on with your your neighbors or your families and your friends. It <laughs> kind of depends just on, on how you're looking at it. I just kind of these open remote landscapes is just uh, a space that I've always felt attracted to that I enjoy working in. And so I think as a photographer and as a storyteller, it's it's important to find those places that you personally feel that you connect with. And those are generally where, where the best stories are going to come from. Do you get assignments from magazines or do you develop a story and then pitch it to a publication like Western Horseman? It's a combination of both. I would say that I generally tend to do more pitching of stories. And a lot of that is just a result of where I'm based located uh, part of the year on a, a remote ranch in southern Chile. So I'm not probably going to get a phone call and be like, hey, can you be at this city tomorrow? It's just it's not feasible. So I end up doing a lot of things to magazines. And the stories that I came across in Western Horsemen, there's such a variety of them. How do you figure out what you're going to write about with, with Western Horsemen? Do you, gonna, do you go to a place and then try to discover the stories there? Or do you do research ahead of time and then make contacts so that when you get to the to a ranch, you have a story already in the works? So Western Horsemen, I'm very grateful for them as a publication. They've been really great to work with and they've given me a platform to share a lot of different angles of horse-related stories. You know, I've done a story from them from Argentina, from Chile, from Colombia, and then a story about charas, which are Mexican cowgirls in the U.S. And so I feel like that's been a trilogy, I guess. I guess there's four stories now, but uh, <laughs> but about a way to, to share about different horsemanship traditions from south of the U.S. border. And I've been grateful for them picking up those stories because I feel like there's 
you know, there's a lot of differences in the world, but horses bring people together. And so I feel like when we understand more about people's lives, whether that be about, you know, how they ride their horses or, you know, how they like to move their livestock, it's just, it's a way of connecting with people across borders and across cultures and across different languages. As far as uh, how a story happens, it's all pretty much planned out beforehand. For example, a lot of the stories that you'll see in a magazine such as Western Horsemen next year are, are projects that are probably being pitched right now. And so what a, what a pitch is, is you submit an idea to the publication about like, hey, this is the person or the ranch that I'd like to cover. You know, this is the angle of the story about, you know, what I expect that the article will be about. And for me, since I do both the photos and the text, like this is kind of what I'm thinking about visually about what I'm hoping to get for with the story. So, you know, you can send in a, a pitch and a pitch can be, you know, a really great idea, but sometimes it's not necessarily a fit for that publication, or maybe mm -hmm. it's just not a fit for that publication at that time. But most of the stories are, are pretty planned out beforehand. So usually what happens is I might have an idea of like, hey, this is something interesting. This is something that I've I heard about or I you know, read a snippet of something and it caught my interest. And then I'll start doing some more research to see if um, someone's done a story on that recently uh, or is there anything new to say about this particular topic. Good stories are usually kind of answering a question of like, you know, why now? <laughs> like, why do we need to hear about this now? Like, why is this meaningful? And a lot of times, you know, editors definitely want that too. They want to see like, why is this, why does this mean something to my audience and, and why should they hear about this right now? So uh, there's a pretty extensive process of research. I would actually out photographing or in the field is honestly probably about 10 or 20% of my work. Most of it actually happens on the back end where I'm doing research before a project starts or planning and setting up logistics and travel. And then a lot of work after I'm out photographing goes into editing the pictures, post-processing the images, so maybe doing a little bit of color correcting, and then the work of transcribing the interviews and putting together the text for the story. So that's where actually most of the time goes into. So for me, when I'm out in the field and when I'm you know out photographing people and you know, meeting folks and being in their you know on their ranch or their place with them, like that's fun. Like that's going out to play. <laughs> and then the work. When you have to sit down at the computer. And do they ever take you out on horses too? Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes, you know, I just, I, I don't want to bother people. So I, I, you know, hope that they like intuit like what I need, but that's not always necessarily the case. So um, sometimes I found that, you know, with experience, it's helpful if I can tell people like, hey, you know, this would, could I go ride with you doing this? Might that be possible? Then they can say like, yeah, we can, you know, make that happen. And stories really are a collaboration. It's I'm most happy with the results of a story when the people that are in it feel like they were well represented, like they see themselves reflected in the photos or they see themselves reflected in the text. And a lot of that, it's, it's like our conversation right now, it's it's collaborating, it's working with them, it's it's their willingness to share and, and let me into their lives to let other people see what they're doing. And so, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of collaboration, really, that that goes into having the ability and permission to spend time with people and then hoping that I feel comfortable and they feel comfortable so that some of the, like the conversation can flow in those stories, the photos can naturally kind of flow out of of what they're doing. Right, right. Was it difficult breaking into the photojournalism business? And what advice would you have for people who are thinking about that? 
you know, for people who might be interested in photography or, or interested in journalism, there's a lot of ways into the field. As a freelancer, a lot of it's really self-directed. No one's going to come, you know, necessarily knocking on your door, at least not initially. But I think that one thing that's unique about the field, or especially with photography, it's it's really about, you know, how well can you tell the story and, and get the images and not so much like necessarily like where did you study or, you know, how formal was your education, which are all things that obviously really help. But a lot of it comes just down to practicing and trying and, and trying and practicing again. Yes, and that's what I find too. It's a lot about getting to know your camera, how it works and how to apply that tool to the image that you can capture. So it's it's not the it's not necessarily the fanciest camera. It's just kind of knowing how to get the most out of that camera to see. Absolutely. Like a lot of times the first question that people ask or they see a picture they like, they say, "Oh, you must have a really nice camera or <laughs> or what?" <laughs> and like good equipment helps. I mean, it really does, but it, it's really not about necessarily what brand of camera you have or if you have the absolute newest model it's really about what what are you seeing what do you want to say when you pick up that camera that's really where the power of the, the photo comes in not necessarily the technical aspects the technical aspects are, are helpful in as much as you don't want that to impede <laughs> your storytelling or or distract but it's really not why you'd be attracted to a picture because it's technically perfect you'd be attracted to a picture because it says something Right. Absolutely. Just as kind of an aside, when you're looking for the photos for a story, do you follow the same kind of progress that you might in film cinematography where you you try to get a wide, a medium and a close up shots and try to balance those out so it tells your story? Yeah, absolutely. You definitely want visual variety when you're telling a story. So those are things that I'm thinking about both while I'm photographing and then when I'm putting together the edit. So for a story for Western Horsemen, I might have five to 7,000 images that I'm going through for that story. And I'll go through and I'll do a first round edit and I'll pick out the ones that, you know, anything that I kind of like that's kind of interesting. And then I'll go through and do like a second round edit, the things that I like a little bit better. <laughs> and then I'll go through and go on another round Every photographer has a different process, but but that's the, kind of the way that I go through it. And at the end of the day, I'm only probably submitting about 12 to 15, 12 to 20 photos for that story. But it was something that was distilled down from thousands of images. Wow. Five to 7,000 images you'll take on a story? Yeah, depending on how many days that I get to spend with people. But but yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, different people shoot a different amount of, you know, images. But, you know, especially with when you're working with horses, you're working with, you know, it's like you're photographing sports, like everyone's in, in motion a lot of times. So right. you were taking a lot of pictures and maybe only one of them will turn out. You've got different expressions or maybe how the horses or hoofs are falling. Like you, maybe you like the way that they're positioned in a particular gate differently from, you know, like, you know, one half second to the next. So a lot of it is going through some of those where you're also trying to make release for something with and like Western Horsemen, you're you're wanting to show the abilities of the horses and the riders. So I'm picking out photos that to speak to to showing the capabilities and, <laughs> you know, 
of the situation. Yeah, good horse photo is somewhat difficult to take just because of the size of the horse and the perspective that they often give. And a good horse photo in action happens at a thousandth of a second. So to get everything right in order, I imagine you do have to take a ton of photos, but that's got to be an incredible amount of editing time too. Yeah, exactly. You do, uh, you do need to take a lot of pictures to be able to get that moment. And yeah, it also does take a lot of time to go through them. (laughs) (laughs) You're in Southern Chile right now and it's winter time there. You're working on a cattle ranch. What does that entail? Yes, I live part of the year on a, a cattle ranch in Southern Chile. It's my husband's family's ranch. They raise Hereford cross cattles. So being here, I do a fair amount of work also up in the U.S. So as I'll, I'll go spend time in the U.S. and I'll go on some reporting trips and gather stories and photos and do my interviews. But then I'll come back here to Chile and uh, working remotely, I am able to turn in those stories while being on the ranch down here. So part of my day is, I guess every day and every week is different, but part of my time, I should say, is dedicated to writing or researching, editing photos, editing text and with editors, generally back in the U.S. And then another part of my time is that I help out on the ranch when it's needed. And, you know, different times of the year, we're busier at other times than others. So it just kind of depends on what we need. Yeah, I do a combination of both the the journalism and then also things on the ranch. And then are you like a, a ranch hand down there? Do you do the work with the cattle and such? Yeah. So it's a small family ranch. Lots of times it's only just uh, my husband and I that are here. And then have maybe when we're branding. In, but yeah, everything is done horseback. We have quite a few working dogs. Most of them are Border Collie Crosses. And they're basically our, our best helpers. Right now we're actually, well, we're moving into winter. So we're actually selling steers, getting gathering and selling steers right now. So it's a different system than, than in the U.S., different um, different season right now. Right. And the reason I asked about the work on the ranch is because you work on a ranch in Chile and then you come up to the States or wherever and you work with ranches and you watch clinics. Can you talk about the differences between maybe the different cultures of horsemen that you've run across? Yeah, I think it's really interesting personally just to see how people do things in different places, whether that be a large ranch up in you know Washington State in the U.S. versus a family ranch in, in Arizona or versus how we do things here in Chile. And a lot of the reasons that people decide to do things a particular way comes out of the materials that they have, the geography, the topography, and, you know, sometimes traditions as well. So I think at the end of the day, everyone's trying to get a job done, and they have different resources and tools to do that. Like here in southern Chile, the the saddles don't have a horn, and so when we rope cattle, you're always tied on to the right-hand cinch, and that's a different way of doing things, but you get you get used to it, and uh, then it becomes natural. 
people in different parts of the U.S. have different preferences for roping, whether they're dallying or or tying on. And a lot of that, again, just kind of depends on what you're used to the, and the materials you have available. And a lot of times, you know, how much space do you have? Do you have do you have to get something roped really fast before it gets into the brush, or you have a lot of open space and planes to get something done in? And I saw. I imagine that the cattle are somewhat different too. I would say the the cattle that we have here are. They're Hereford crosses. They have a little bit of Charlet in them, a little bit of red and black Angus. I think one of the biggest differences might just be how much they're handled. Our cattle here don't see people very often. And so like if if you show up on foot, they're going to take off. And so everything is done, you know, horsebacking with the dogs. And if you live in a maybe a more urban or a rural urban environment where maybe they're seeing vehicles or people walking around. They're just going to have a different reaction. It would be like a horse that has been, uh, grew up around people versus, you know, a horse that you just pulled in off the range. Right. And you've done a, a couple of stories on sheepdogs. Do you do any dog training yourself? Not really. Well, sort of. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> I'm learning. That's the answer to that question. So I have a few dogs and they they work for me, but I feel like they're I'm like back to the the same like I feel like I'm starting over again like you're a green rider <laughs> with the horse that the you know the dogs are way their instinct <laughs> outpowers me but you know at least I, they're not going to like fuck me off but but I feel like I'm just trying to figure figure them out so yeah so my husband Juan Luis they, he grew up using dogs for all of their their work and so he's been teaching me how to work with them so that's it's a really neat connection I mean he told me at first that you know you're gonna like working with the dogs someday as much as you like working the horses and I wasn't I wonder that I didn't like the dogs but I didn't really understand that connection that you can have when you have a dog working with you and working for you. And so it's been pretty special to learn how to to use the dogs in a, in a useful and helpful way. When you covered the the shepherds of Patagonia for International Sheepdog News, what kind of amazing things did you see those dogs do? That's a yeah, that's a fun story. A local family here in in southern Chile near near where we live, the closest town is Puerto Natales, and they live in kind of a another little town called Cerro Castillo, and it's a very traditional kind of sheep ranching area. A lot of that goes back to the early migrant flows into the region, and a lot of equipment and techniques actually came over from England. So that's kind of where that family lives, and they work sheep instead of like we have cattle here. But it's neat to see how far they can send those dogs out. And the dogs really are essential to their work to be able to move their flocks and then being able to get the sheep through the corrals and the different breeds of dogs too. You know, people here tend to use a Kelpie or or Border Collie Uh are kind of more of the modern day breeds, but they have a regional dog that they call the Barbucho, which I guess would kind of just be like a bearded Barba would be like beards. So it's kind of just like a, a bearded collie. And, and it's kind of neat if you look back at some of the old pictures of you compare some of these like regional dogs to some like, you know, old English sheepdog photos. It's interesting to see how even some of the historical ties between places even carry on in the in the genetics and presentation <laughs> of the animals. So yeah, so they so it's neat to see how they do their work and to see the different types of dogs doing their job. Yeah, we watched a uh, sheepdog trial that that went on not too far from here, and 
Tahon Ranch. And the distance that they send those dogs out, it's it's like a half a mile. And the dogs are completely on their own to round up those sheep and bring them back. It's truly amazing. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. And one of the things that I've had fun learning about is we have puppies here every so often, but it's interesting to see how the puppies have their own instincts as far as as where they like to work. Some of the dogs just naturally tend to want to go more towards the head and some of the dogs just naturally want to go more towards the heel. And uh, it's interesting to see, you know, you can develop and, you know, start to direct them more as they get older. But it's pretty interesting to see how how instinctual a lot of their ability is. Wow. So even in the same litter, you'll have some puppies that want to go more to the head and some that want to go to the feet? Yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of tell when they're just puppies playing around, you can kind of get a sense maybe of what they might be like, but it's not really until you start getting them out there those first handful of times that you kind of start to see what they might like and where their preferences are. So it's it's pretty interesting because the where we work here, there's a lot of forest and a lot of brush. I only have a few dogs, but Juan Luis will often work with eight or 10 dogs. And when he puts together, he's got a couple of different groups of dogs that work together. But when he's putting together the dog groups, it's almost like putting together like a soccer team or a football team where he's trying to mix the different strengths of, you know, like if everyone wants to go to the head, we're not going to go anywhere. But if we're just everyone, you know, going to the heels, like there's no stop. So it's pretty interesting just seeing how you can, you know, balance out the different dogs abilities, even within a group. You've got to have a midfielder and uh, an attacker and a forward. You've got to have the whole team with you. Yeah, no, you absolutely do. You need, you know, some that are more comfortable that are working on the sides and just kind of want to keep everyone in order. And then, you know, if you need to get everyone stopped, you you need some that are pretty excited to get up there to the head. So there's a couple of stories that really kind of piqued my interest. The end of the world cowboys that you did for Western Horsemen, that just seemed like such a harsh environment. Have you ever been in danger while you're covering one of these stories and these out of the way places? Well, thankfully, I, to this point, I, not necessarily danger. I, I do think that many times unexpected things happen <laughs> when you're working on a story. And so a lot of it is just about being flexible and, and able to adapt to to the circumstances. Can you tell us about something unexpected that may have happened on a story? It depends on the type of story that, that I'm working on. Sometimes I have a really clear idea, like I know exactly who I'm going to be working with, like maybe I go to a particular ranch and I'm going to be covering, you know, a story about the family and their history. And so that those stories are oftentimes more straightforward. Mm-hmm. I kind of have an idea of like, okay, I need to talk to these people. And then I have an idea in beforehand of, okay, these are the different types of photographs that I'd like to try and get. What do I need to be able to, you know, capture the essence of their operation and what's important to them? So those stories are often more straightforward. You know, maybe we have some weather issues or I don't know, like <laughs> someone arrives late, you know, some stuff like that. That's It's not super crazy just kind of to deal with. You know, then other times I'm working on a story where it's just an idea that I generated and I'm going out and looking for things to photograph that I feel like might be able to explain better uh, of the visual aspect of a story. So um, an example of that might be a couple years ago, I worked on a story that ended up being published in National Geographic, but it was about how COVID was influencing 
people's interactions with public lands. Mm -hmm. And this was when there's a lot of people outside and the trailheads are super crowded. And and I kind of wanted to capture that, but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do that. So I picked a trailhead that I thought might be busy and I left the house at four o'clock in the morning and I drove up to the mountains and, you know, unpacked my gear and started walking up the trail and just was open to figuring out, you know, who I could see and who I might find. Yeah, I ended up meeting some interesting people, including a local youth corporation or group that was doing some trail work and their image ended up fitting into the story. So I think, you know, sometimes unexpected things like like that happen where you don't necessarily know if you're going to find anything or anyone interesting. But a lot of it is about getting out there and seeing what you might find. And it's surprising how many times that actually turns into a piece of a story. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. You can find something special in just about any place you're at. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it's easy to think about, you know, I need to go to like this faraway place to be able to do a story. And, you know, sometimes I do do that, but I used to do a lot of work in Colorado where I'm from. And a lot of times there's a huge value to people who are working on stories and in places that they know well, and they can tell the nuances in a different way than, than someone who comes from in from the outside and has to try and learn a lot of those things real quick. One last story I just wanted to to bring up, because I thought some of the photographs were spectacular, was the story you did, and it was a personal project, The Way to Santiago. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Is that a a pilgrimage that people make? Yeah. So the month after I finished my undergraduate degree, I went and did this walk across Spain with a with a close friend. And so, yeah, it's like a, technically a pilgrimage from like the Middle Ages where, you know, people would walk across um, these different pilgrimage routes in Europe to arrive to Santiago de Compostela, which is a, a city in northwest Spain. But I did that trip when I was, I guess, 21 or 22 with a friend. And it was a really meaningful experience to do and get up and walk each day. So then 10 years later, the the photographs from that project, I went back and I redid the same trip again in 2017. My friend wasn't able to come with me, but I was able to do the trip again. And it was interesting to reflect on, you know, what I'd done in 10 years and, you know, just approached it from a different different place in life. Wow. Hey, are you going to do that like every 10 years? I would like to. I don't know if that's going to be possible. I don't know if I can take a month off every 10 years, but, but maybe I can go for a week. Is that how, how long does it take? The There's different routes. The route that I walk both times takes, if you do it fast, about 30 to 35 days. Oh, wow. Oh, that's fascinating. Well, that's pretty exciting stuff there, Andrea. That, Like I said, you've really carved out an adventurous life for yourself. And what are plans for the coming year? Plans for the coming year. I am still wrapping up a couple of more projects with uh, Western Horsemen. So I'm excited to get those out and published over the next few months. Good. Yeah, and then I, I haven't been doing as much work in Chile lately, actually. So I'm hoping to be able to maybe do a couple more stories down here. So working on seeing what those might look like, but but we'll see. Sounds good. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing your life as a photographer and journalist with horses involved. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to, to spend time with you and glad to be here. If people want to find out more about Andrea Hadamaki, see your photographs or 
find out other information, where can they connect with you? Sure. So my website is ahowdyphoto.com, and that's spelled the letter A-H-O-W-D-Y-P-H-O-T-O.com. Or you can also find me on Instagram, and that's also at ahowdyphoto. I look forward to reading more of your stories in Western Horsemen and other magazines and following your photography as well. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> that will do it for this episode. Thanks to Andrea Hadamaki for sharing her experiences as a writer and photojournalist. If you are a reader of Western Horsemen, you got a little behind-the-scenes insight into the world in which she works. Andrea has carved out a career of travel, working with animals, and adventure. I think that's pretty cool. If you're interested in photography, do yourself a favor and check out Andrea's website. There are so many great photographs from all her different stories. I'll have all the links to Andrea at wopodcast.com. One of my thrills in producing the podcast is the fun I get from talking to people in other parts of the world. Thanks to Andrea, I get to add chili to the list of Canada, England, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, and Mongolia. It's a pretty good way to be an armchair traveler. If you have any show ideas or suggestions for future guests, reach out to me at john at wopodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name Podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and writing buddies. Until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.